Welcome to Emerging Cricket Rewind, a retrospective series where we look back at some of the great moments in emerging cricket history. This time, we're travelling back 18 years to the 2003 Cricket World Cup in South Africa, where Namibia graced the world stage in their first major ICC event. Last time, we dug into the backstory of their qualification at the 2001 ICC Trophy in Toronto. An exciting, unbeaten run to the final secured their tickets to South Africa before they fell agonisingly short of the trophy against the Netherlands. As excitement grew for the African World Cup, Namibia drafted in Scotland and England dual international Dougie Brown as coach, on the advice of his Warwickshire coach, Bob Warmer, who is now the ICC's high-performance manager. And on the 10th of February 2003, the big day arrived. Namibia's World Cup and official ODI debut saw them face fellow African Zimbabwe in the first match of Pool A, in front of a boisterous crowd at the Harare Sports Club. Stepping onto the field for the first time remains a special memory for batsman Dani Kilder. Yeah, so Nick, if we you know, sort of look back at the um, favourite and most memorable moments of the tournament, um, I think for me definitely walking onto the field, uh, that first game against them, was, I mean, that's obviously that's a player's dream to play in a World Cup to represent your country. And for us, you know, being a small cricketing nation, it was obviously uh, a fantastic uh, moment. As well as being a great occasion for the players in Harare, it was also an inspiring moment for those following at home in Namibia, like ladies player Irene Fonsale. Seeing the guys partake in a World Cup event, obviously as a ladies player, you strive and you hope that you would be the one walking onto the field one day in your Namibian colours. So obviously it gives you that extra bit of a boost and inspiration to keep going and to keep fighting. While the continental rivalry was not at the forefront of skipper Dion Kotz's mind, he had hoped to spring an upset. But a certain Zimbabwean opening batsman had other plans. I don't think that there was any specific uh, sort of feeling about it just because it was another African country. Maybe very naively, though, we had sort of pinpointed two games in the World Cup that we felt we had a slight chance in. And the one was Zimbabwe, um, the other one being obviously um, Holland, who who had qualified along with us. But uh, as I said, quite naively, we didn't realize that we were going to run into Craig Wishart, uh, who played an incredible knock. Namibian team manager Francois Rasmus was forthright in his analysis of the innings. Craig Wishart on the day was just brilliant and he bashed us to all parts of the Ari Sports Club. He was simply unstoppable and I also think we didn't bowl that well on the day. That's too short and it is hammered away. That's fallen, it's driven. Diving at covers fails to prevent what could be another four. The Rory Sports Club outfield is a lot quicker than it used to be. And the second boundary for Craig Wishart. You know, we'd played against Craig a few times before then in the South African bowl competition as Zimbabwe played in that as well. And, uh, you know, while obviously he's a class player, he'd certainly never played in innings like that against us. So the moment Craig played that innings and then obviously a few of the other top guys like Grant Flower and Andy all chipped in as well to just take the total well beyond anything we could ever reach. 
In the midst of the carnage, Lenny Lowe provided some history, as he took Namibia's first ODI wicket when he dismissed Mark Vermeulen, caught and bowled. For someone who'd played such an important role in Namibian cricket over the years, it was appropriate that he'd be the first name in the record books, though sadly he'd have to sit out the rest of the tournament with a back injury. Yes! Caught and bowled. Lenny Lau, the veteran of Namibian cricket, has given them their first breakthrough. Making a bit of history there. Lobs it straight back to the bowler. He'll be disappointed with that. He's batting well. Decided to move his feet. Came down. Got it high up on the bat. I think the bowler saw him coming. Juggled it. And he'll be very happy with that. That puts him at the top of what we hope will be a very long list. But the day belonged to Wishart. He put Namibia to the sword on his way to 172 not out, batting all the way through the innings for 151 deliveries as he propelled Zimbabwe to 340 for two. The highest total of the tournament until Australia steamrolled India in the final. And he's got 100. Craig Wishart, 101 from 100 balls. And the crowd has thoroughly enjoyed that. And he has played really well. And it's another four down the ground. And that now will mean that he holds the record on his own. Past individual not by Zimbabwean. He goes to 149. It's a strong shot again. He's going to beat the fielder straight over his head. Another six. And he's gone past 150. Back raised. He's enjoyed this. In coach Dougie Brown's assessment, the big occasion might have got to Namibia with the bowlers wayward in their first ever televised match. We didn't bowl very well. It was the first game in the tournament and we were all a bit nervy, you know, so it wasn't a best performance, but just fantastic to get off and running in a tournament uh, on the world stage, particularly when there was so much riding on it from a, uh, from a viewership point of view and, and so much on it from a personal context. And facing a daunting target, Namibia's chase got off to a bad start with Rian Valters edging behind on the first ball of the match. Oh, first ball, he's got the outside edge, and that's the first wicket down. Well, there we go, it struck Walters on his way back. He streaked the captain strikes. But Jan Berryberger started with intent, showing a glimpse of the strong hitting that he became known for in Namibia's 2003 campaign. It certainly made an impression on team manager Francois Erasmus, as well as his young son Gerrit watching back home. I can recall an absolutely magnificent drive over extra cover by J.B. Berger for six. Oh, he's gone over the top. That's a very good shot. And that may go all the way. It has. That's the maximum. Six over extra cover. And the field will change again. And the big lad, Berger, once again, on the drive, over the top. He's an immensely strong character. That's out of here, over extra cover, into the stand. And I still remember him um, hitting one of heat streaks. First balls that he bowled to him in the, in the innings, he hit it over cover for six when they played a game in Zimbabwe. A couple of overs later though, Heath Streak got his man. This one's gone straight up, Midon should catch it. He does, and defies the man at Midon, takes the catch. And the second wicket down. J.B. Berger's adventure comes to an end. As well as the big-hitting Berger, Zimbabwe also had the weather to contend with. Heavy storm clouds rolled over the ground, and they rushed to get to the 25-over cut-off point that constituted an official game. 
Nine overs in 25 minutes. That's what they bowled. And now they're going to, like you say, breathe a lot easier. They've dominated all day, and it would have been very sad to lose it at this stage. <laughs> Simon Tofel is gesturing to the groundsman to bring the covers on yet again. And the drizzle is getting stronger and stronger. So the covers yet again come on to cover the pitch. And we have another interruption. Ending on 104 for 5, 86 behind on the Duckworth-Lewis equation, it was a limp conclusion to Namibia's World Cup debut. Yeah, I think, again, that was the first game. Going into that game, we were very excited. As Dion said, we, we really did feel we had a chance. Um, obviously, rain coming in later that afternoon didn't make things easier. So, yeah, after the game, a little bit, I mean, obviously disappointed because we couldn't play the 50 overs. But again, yeah, sort of the first one done and dusted and, and looking forward to the second one. Even as Zimbabwe beat the weather, though, dark clouds of another kind were gathering above Harare as this was the day of the famous black armband protest by Henry Alonga and Andy Flower. Okay, on Andy's right arm there, some of you may have noticed a black armband. There you go. It's not because uh, a condolence for a person, it's more condolence for a country by the sounds of it. This morning, Andrew Flower and Henry Alonga issued a joint statement. At last they were honoured to play for Zimbabwe, they were deeply distressed by what was happening in this country and they didn't feel with any conscience they could not make their thoughts known. The statement reads, It is impossible to ignore what is happening in Zimbabwe. Although we are just professional cricketers, we do have a conscience and feelings. We believe that if we remain silent, that would be taken as a sign that either we do not care we condone what is happening in Zimbabwe. The statement continues that they haven't influenced any of the junior players in the team. They feel that as senior players, it's up to them. The statement was released at 9.30 a.m. on the morning of the game. So we're not too sure if even the rest of the team know what was happening. It's gone for this slog sweep, hit hard. And they look for two because that boundary is a little deep. So 23 overs gone. The score is 115 for one. At the crease is Andy Flower. And to continue the statement he released along with Henry Alonga this morning. In doing so, we are mourning the death of democracy in our beloved Zimbabwe. That is the reason he is wearing a black armband. We are making a silent plea to those responsible to stop the abuse of human rights in Zimbabwe. In doing so, we pray that our small action may help to restore sanity and dignity in our nation. While the political situation in Zimbabwe had gained widespread attention, Namibia were taken by surprise when Flower and Alonga approached team management to explain their planned act of conscience. Before the game, we'd, we, had, we had no idea that um, you know, Andy Flower and Henry Alonga were going to stage their black armband protest. Uh, and before the game started, Andy, as, uh, as captain, called me aside. I, I knew Andy pretty well from the UK. And he gave me a, a letter which he had written as to the reasons for this. He didn't want Namibia to be wrapped up in the game for the wrong reasons, but he felt this was a very important platform for him to stand up for what was right in Zimbabwe at that moment in time. You know, we, we had to sort of brief the dressing room and, and just make them aware that whatever their protest was, it wasn't to affect anything that we did on the game uh, during the day. I think I've actually got that letter somewhere in my house as well. It was a packed Harare Sports Club where we played and I was surprised to be confronted by the Zimbabwean team manager and with Henry Longa and Flower asking to enter our change room 
as they wanted to make a short statement. The rest is history. They came into our change room or said what they had on their hearts about the reason for wearing the black armbands on the field and then left. Our players were obviously a bit stunned having never been involved at this level with cricket and having never been exposed to political issues of that nature. I think we were a bit stunned to be quite honest and um, tried to put it behind us. Dougie implored on the guys to just let Zimbabwe play their game and let their issues be their issues. Um, but I think still thinking back nearly 20 years now, I do think it was quite a difficult issue to encounter right before the start of the match. Perhaps more so than Flower and Alonga's principled stand against Mugabe, the simple joy of seeing their heroes on TV left a mark on young Herod Erasmus and Stefan Bard. Yeah, watching the 2003 World Cup on TV was was really cool. I still remember having my my own score sheet out. So we had a scorebook at home and I would go and sit in front of the television and score ball for ball while my dad's sitting in the changing room and I'm I'm scoring the players ball for ball. There were a lot of um, great moments from that World Cup that I can remember. But I think the ones that stand out for me firstly was the first match uh, we played against Zimbabwe. Um, didn't go too well, but I mean, still, it was like the first time that we seen him maybe on the TV playing cricket. And especially as a young boy and a young cricket lover, it was a it was a great thing for us to see, you know. And I think that was the first time that I realised that there's so much more to achieve as a cricket player from Namibia than just playing, you know, your domestic tournament. So I think that one was a big one. Next up was Pakistan and Kimberley. And all eyes were on pace spearhead Shoaib Akhtar, who along with Brett Lee was the fastest bowler in the world. Both men were racing to break the 100 mile per hour barrier, and the Namibians were worried about being caught in the crossfire. You know, you had world class fast bowlers bowling at the top end of their game, uh, and it was a you know it was a pace off for everybody. You know, everybody was trying to outdo each other. Um, other. <laughs> Memorable moments was uh, preparing for Wasim Akram and, and, and uh, Shaib Akhtar, having the bowling machine at 150 plus kilometers um, in the nets in Kimberley. That was quite an experience. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that, let, let me just say it, it didn't go the way we, we thought it would go. A disciplined bowling performance and an improved effort in the field saw Pakistan restricted to 255 for nine. In response, though, Namibia never stood a chance. The pace duo of Wazim Akram and Shoab blasted through the top order to leave them reeling at 17 for 5 and then 42 for 9 before some late hitting from Bjorn Kotzer and Rudy van Furen took Namibia to 84 all out. Oh, ball them! Ball them all ends up! Shoab Akram! He gets the third one right on target, right through the defences of Kilda, and it's number three down for Namibia. Oh, this may be trouble here, but not off the head, up goes the finger, fourth wicket down and second for Wazim Akram. Oh, he may be out here, he's off at no shot, and Wazim Akram strikes again. Finger goes up, the fifth wicket falls for Namibia, the score 17 for 5. Dougie Brown could only look on with awe as his team was blown away. Yeah, at one stage we were looking around, Shorb was falling 160 k's an hour and um, like there was seven slips and the only person in front of Square was, was the umpire and the bowler. It was, uh, it was fantastic to watch, you know, kind of terrifying at the same time. 
For Dion Kotze, it was like being stuck in a bad dream. As far as the Pakistan game goes and you know, the preparation of what it felt like during the game as the collapse was happening, you will be aware that it, that wasn't the only time it happened. I think we had an even worse collapse against Australia later in the tournament. But it was again, it's one of those surreal things, as you'll know, while you're in the situation, it's almost like you know, you're just not quite prepared for it and you're not quite aware of it even. And there's just nothing you can do to stop it. And uh, the one thing that stands out, if you go and look at probably all the games we played, it was hardly ever the real quick guys like Shoaib Akhtar and Brett Lee who ended up taking the wickets, but rather the guys who swung the ball or did something with the ball. In, in the Pakistan game, it was Wazim Akram, who probably still rated as one of the best bowlers in history. And it was just we simply couldn't cope with the swing. It was the same with Zahir Khan against India, who just kept on knocking people on the feet all the time. <laughs> So it was just one of those things, you know, and now I'm talking from a captaincy point of view, it was just impossible to do anything about. You just couldn't halt it because, you know, it, it's not like you can press pause and call everyone into the dressing room. Not that I think it would have helped anyway, but yeah, it was, there was just nothing you could do about it. You know, and, and afterwards, you sit in the dressing room just quite shell-shocked and you know, not quite sure what exactly had just happened. Despite struggling in the encounter, the experience made for some great tales to share with the next generation when they got home. <laughs> it's quite funny we had a, there's a funny story that some of the guys um, mentioned where they were playing Pakistan and Kimberley and Sharp Akhtar was bowling and he was bowling you know at that stage he was bowling 150 kilometers an hour and quicker 160 I think he clocked in that World Cup as well and uh, back then he was sitting in the changing room and you could see the TV in the changing room and the speeds and there's a story where the manager <laughs> the manager sort of at a stage of, they kept looking at the speeds that he was bowling at and the guys were thinking uh, this is this is going to be a long night. And the manager went up to stage and he, he put like a plaster on where the speed gun would put the, uh, the speeds up. <laughs> so um, so he put a plaster on the screen so the guys couldn't see the speeds because <laughs> they weren't concentrating on the game. They were concentrating on the speed. Um, we can still remember Akhtar and all the fast bowlers of Pakistan bowling really quickly at our batsmen. And our batsmen love to tell the stories of, of those encounters. I remember Donnie Kilder telling the story about how he got hit on his thigh pad and then played the shot about a second or two later and the ball really stinging him through his thigh pad. So all those kinds of stories were really nice to hear when they came back. The match against Pakistan itself was um, an awesome experience for, for all of us and especially the players obviously playing against the likes of Wazim and Wakar and all those legends and again it was simply on the bowling side that, that our batters were not equipped to deal with the extra pace and obviously also guile of that uh, level of bowling and when Rian Walters was struck by Wazim with an in-swinging yorker at 140 plus he basically walked before the umpire raised his finger and that obviously sitting in the change room on the balcony watching that wasn't a great feeling I believe for the batters to come so much so that uh, Rudy van Vieren would become a bit of a legend during the tournament by then had strapped his uh, protector which needed to be in his underpants had strapped a spare protector with tape around his left front foot and put that foot on the balcony for every TV camera to see and obviously showed exactly what he thought about possibility of being struck by an in-swinging yoker of Wazim or Wakar or any other menacing bowler of Pakistan.
For their third game, Namibia travelled south to the historic St George's Park in Port Elizabeth for what would prove to be their most memorable outing, as they put up a strong fight against England. Francois Erasmus recalls the team being well settled before the game due to a good build-up on and off the field. England were our favourites, and staying in the Holiday Inn in uh, Port Elizabeth, we soon realised why, because they were a professional bunch with at least a management and coaching staff complement of 25, and we had Dougie, Alec and myself, and our liaison officer and our baggage master. That was the total complement of our staff. And getting into the lift or having breakfast in the same dining hall, we were simply not given any recognition. What we did from our side was we thought, well, let's us just concentrate on what we could do. We prearranged quite a decent uh, PR exercise. We attended on a home for mentally handicapped elderly people, adults, not, not children. Uh, where I accompanied a few of the players and it was brilliant to see the likes of Rudy van Vieren who's a medical doctor and the way that him and some of the other teammates liaised with, with these mentally handicapped people and invited them along to the game, gave them entrance tickets and then actually seeing these people in a certain section of the of the stadium in their wheelchairs, everyone with their own carer cheering us on made a massive difference. It was a great experience for the chaps. Then we arranged a cricket game against the Dolphins at the aquarium in PE, the world famous aquarium. And it was amazing to see how well trained they were. If you threw them the big ball, they would actually, with their nose, butted, head butted back towards. And then we had a few players with cricket bats batting off the uh, bowling attempts made by the Dolphins. And that all of that PR reached local newspapers. And I believe on the other hand, the Papers might not have been given much to write on by the English players and uh, so we enjoyed the attention and we had a two or three good days of training leading up to the match in the nets there at St George's. We were treated great by the locals there and by the staff at St George's and I think on the day the players just felt that they belonged at St George's Park. And when we arrived on the day, some of the schools, including Grey College P, were given time off and the students were there in their official dress, waving Namibian flags and uh, singing songs in support of Namibia, which was, which was obviously great. Having played nine ODIs for England and over a decade at Warwickshire, Dougie Brown's experience came to the fore in Namibia's build-up. Clearly, it's like mixed feelings for me. You know, you're playing against a team that of team of players that you know, where you played against regularly, you've shared the dressing with, and that sort of stuff. So, you, with regards to your strategy, you, you, you know, you hope as a coaching staff you've managed to nail that and 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 try and look for areas that you can try and exploit the English batters and bowlers. And it's no coincidence that their best performance came in the match where they were most prepared. I think if you asked a lot of the Namibian guys today, they would probably single out the England game as their favourite or their highlight of that tournament. Simply because there was quite a lot of personal feeling about it because we had Dougie Brown, who at that stage was an old pro from Warwickshire. So obviously he knew all the English players personally. He also knew their games quite well. So it was the one game where we felt we'd actually prepared fairly well for each individual player. And it also brought up quite a lot of very good performances from our side. I remember England made about 270-odd with Triscothic and Alex Stewart, who was the stand-in captain for the day. The two of them sort of were top-scored. Triscothic and Stewart's 78-run partnership was the backbone of the innings, as they both registered half-centuries. Let's pull that away, and that's going to go for six. Very good shot. Certainly was short. He could help himself. He went a long way and brought up his 50. Set himself for that, Alex Stewart. 
England very relaxed there, knowing that uh, runs will pile on. Alex Stewart pulling the ball away through mid-wicket. 53 from 68. In the air, nice and straight. That's going to run away for four as well. Just a couple of bounces in the end. Very well hit by Marcus Descothic. And a smile on his face as well. I'm not surprised. Sidelined after the Zimbabwe game with a back injury, player and former coach Lenny Lowe felt his teammates let the English innings get away a little after early wickets. But he was happy overall with the bowling effort. England made 272 at St George's Park. We probably could have restricted them to, say, 10, 20 runs less. But uh, there were some very good individual performances in that match. And it started with, uh, on, the, on the bowling department, where Reed van Fieden took five wickets for 43 runs. A superb piece of bowling against a very, very good uh, England bowling attack. Um, and the rest of the guys also bowled well. So 272, uh, maybe 250, 260 would have been um, par. But on our side, Rudy van Vieren took five wickets. And it was, again, it was one of those very funny things. You know, St. George's Park in Port Elizabeth is not renowned for being a very quick pitch at all. And we'd been warned by Dougie Brown not to bowl short to guys like Nick Knight. In fact, not to, we didn't have the, the pace attack to really bowl short to anyone. And of course, Rudy proceeded to bounce out Nick Knight first <laughs> and I think one or two others as well. Where I'm not sure if they were just too quick on the pull or too slow on the pull. I'm not sure. Rudy will tell you they were way slow on the ball. Wonderful catch at mid-wicket. McKnight didn't really get hold of it. He tried to repeat the shots that he played in the previous over from Van Vuren. This time he didn't get it through and Louis Berger it is who's taken a fine diving catch. Pull shot and gone. Certainly didn't uh, have any pace off the deck. Hit reasonably high on the bat. Louis Berger is the man that's taken the catch. So what a huge breakthrough that is from Nibia. Second one in a row, McKnight succumbed to the pull shot. Michael Vaughan follows suit off the same bowler. Caught again at that short mid-wicket position. After the partnership between Triscothic and Stewart, Namibia pegged back regular wickets before Rudy Van Furen returned to clean up the tail and record Namibia's very first five-wicket haul in ODI cricket. He's got his fifth. Rudy Van Furen takes five wickets in the England innings with the final ball of that England innings it's Andy Carrick who having uh, used his brains the ball before has discarded them had a huge swing missed it and England are all out of the final ball of the innings for 272 what a moment for Van Buren with five for he's just nicked in at the end he bowled really well both England don't miss two for ten and then he's come on at the end of the innings and bowled these round arm little dibblers and there's the last of them He's got five for Caddy, looking for the big heave hole, looking for the boundary, looking for four. He gets a nick on, and he's got five for. His figures will be fabulous, five for 43, and what a moment for Namibia. In addition to his achievements on the cricket field, later in the year, Van Furen would travel to Australia for the 2003 Rugby World Cup, where his appearance at fly half against Romania made him the only man to have played in World Cups for two different sports in the same year. Back in Port Elizabeth, and Namibia were determined to make a go of the chase against England. JB Berger once again provided the impetus, blasting 85 off 86 in a blistering counter-attack that became one of the most memorable associate performances at the 2003 World Cup. That swept away as wickets. Good shot. Michael Vaughan giving chase, but to no avail. 
good hold of that. Still short. Flicked away leg side. That outfield is uh, certainly quickened up. It was fairly slow this morning, but that'll run away fairly quickly for four. Good shot. Very well played. What a nice way to go to his 50. Well played, Jamie Berger. First in the middle ever to get 50 in a one-day international. Big smile over his face. Why not? That's away. That is a great shot. That is really well played to extra cover. All along the turf for four. He's hit that back tremendously powerfully. Flintoff was uh, almost ducking. He said he was by the end. That'll help the cause. That's going to go a long way back. What a shot. With Berger in fine form, a partnership building steadily, and rain clouds starting to gather, the Namibians began to feel an upset might be on the cards. At one stage, there was a belief that we could really chase down the score. And even at one stage, there was rain threatening and Danny Kilder had the Duckworth Lewis score sheet in his pocket. And at a certain stage, the rain came and the game had been called off. Uh, Namibia was actually ahead on Duckworth Lewis. It's a good shot, that is a good shot. That's found the gap beautifully. Just enough loft to get it over short at wickets. Plenty of power again. 97 runs added now between J.B. Berger and Danny Kelder. Back in the dressing room, Lenny Lowe was keeping an eye on the equation. J.B. Berger played a very, very good knock. And by the time he got out, our score was uh, 139. And we needed 133 more runs at uh, only 6.3 per over, which is the run rate he was scoring at, at that stage. And we really felt that, you know, if he could only have pushed on to get 100 or 110, it could have made or would have made it the difference. But three figures was not to be, and Namibia would have to wait another 16 years for a century in ODI cricket, when JP Kotzer reached the milestone against the USA in 2019. After timing his shots to perfection throughout the day, JB Berger was foxed by a slower off-cutter from Craig White. It's going to be a chance, and it's a good catch as well. Well, that could change things round for England, and in the nick of time too. It's the end of the partnership. It's the end of Jan Berigorica for what for him is a wonderful 85. He's been attacking, he's been belligerent, he's been confident, he's taken his chance. Above all else, he's enjoyed himself, but it was the off-cutter that was finally his undoing. He's played wonderfully well, you get a terrific ovation. It's Collingwood with a good catch there for England. Casey Fieldsman, safe Fieldsman, well played. Jan Berry Berger, 85 from 86, Namibia 139 for three. As JB Berger stole the show, Danny Kilder was again the quiet achiever, playing a reliable second fiddle and then carrying on the fight after his wicket. The, the big role that we should also not uh, forget is that the role Danny Kilder played in that match. He made 46 runs, uh, supporting JB first of all. Is a big hit. <laughs> Three meditated and all the way. This is a magnificent strike. Shades of Richards there. Craig White with the off cutter. Pre meditated it, got across the crease and spanked it over in the wicket for six. 
Yeah, I think from my side, uh, you know, having battled with JB for quite a while, it was just fantastic to see, you know, what he was capable of doing to the England attack. And I don't think I've ever played as hard for rain on that, on that specific day as I did. But yeah, it, it, it just proved to us that, you know, we, we can compete on, on that level. Although, obviously, consistency was a problem. But playing on that level for a certain amount of time could definitely put us in a position where we could upset the big teams. Unfortunately for Kelda and Namibia, the clouds held off. A sharp bit of fielding did for Dani, and after that, the run chase began to slip away. Over the top, there is a sweeper out there. It's Marcus Truskothic. They want to come back for two. This will be interesting. I think that uh, is going to be referred to the third umpire. It certainly is. Nadim Gari is going to have a job to do. But you can see from the response of the England players that that looks like he is short. That's a pity. The second round not really on... On this occasion, Marcus Treskovic with a good throw right over the top. The Kilda's not even really in the picture. The ball's come off. And that's the fourth wicket down now. The Kilda played well, 173 for four. And the time he got out, our score was 174. And we needed 98 runs at 7.5 runs per over. Um, Dani was out from a, a brilliant side-on run-out, direct hit by Treskothic um, right from defence. Um, I think at that stage we realised it was going to be very difficult um, for new batsmen to come in and to, to score the required runs would have been difficult. So, you know, we, it's probably one of those matches where we ended up 30 short and they scored 20 too many runs and that was the difference between the two teams. But it was a it was certainly a great match and, and I think for all of us probably the, the highlight of the tournament. Looking back though, Dion Kotze is realistic about the quality of the opposition and the uphill task facing Namibia, but he still views the match as a highlight of his time at the World Cup. Just looking at that England bowling attack, you know, James Anderson, Andrew Caddick, Craig White, Andrew Flintoff, you know, it was always going to be very difficult to sustain that for a full 50 overs. But for a very long time, we were really in the game. And with the rain threatening, there was a very realistic chance that if it had rained at any stage, you know, we might have snuck a very big upset in the game. But it was it was not to be, but certainly a favourite, not least because of the way the Barmy Army actually got behind Namibia, even more so that evening for drinks in and around some of the bars around Port Elizabeth. And uh, it was just amazing, you know, as we got into our innings and especially the way JB batted up front. And it was actually absolutely brilliant to gradually hear this English crowd, which we all know they have this reputation for, um, you know, for being loud and boisterous. And they actually gradually sort of got behind the Namibian guys as they could sniff this upset happening, which unfortunately didn't happen. But certainly from a playing point of view, that was one of the favourite memories. Though disappointed not to get over the line. Dougie Brown prefers to see the result in the context of his players' growth as cricketers. You know, given the the starting point of all these players who were so far away from being international players or professional players, you know, to run a whole bunch of top class, world class players as close as they did, I think was uh, was an enormous uh, coup from our side and something that that none of the the team extended team will ever forget. Even as Namibia's chase unravelled, JB's innings drew plaudits from observers like Bob Warmer, as well as enthralling the fans back home. When JB Berger got stuck into some of the England bowlers and just absolutely smashed them, I remember Bob Warmer saying afterwards that the way JB and some of the other Namibian batters batted against England showed that they were actually they batted with authority. And Bob was impressed with the skills that some of our batters displayed against very, very good England bowling attack. 
The 85 of JB against England was quite something special. I know, um, remembering a little bit, when he actually reached his 50, you always had this hope in you that JB might actually go on and get 100. So every run from there on was watched with, uh, in a very close situation. Yeah, you know, you remember those small glimpses of guys doing well in the in the World Cup and that was a really cool thing for me as a young cricketing nerd to hold on to. I was like, I was, I was like, awestruck with JB Berger's innings. I was, yeah. Talking about the JB Berger, JB Berger score um, of 85 against England, which for me was probably one of the the proudest moments I had as a cricketer because that showed to me that doesn't matter which country you play for, where you come from, the level experience that you have. Every person on this planet can actually perform against the top, you know. So it showed to a lot of the the Namibian players at that stage that there's so much more to achieve, and anybody can stand out if you do the work, you know, and if you if you're lucky enough to be there. And we were very proud of something like that, and the result that we that we had against England, even though we lost, that was a very proud result. And I think everybody was quite proud of what those guys achieved and what JB did on that day. You know, it was wonderful to watch. Next time on AC Rewind, we relive Namibia's tough run home against both of the eventual finalists, India and Australia, before a last day grudge match against fellow associates, the Netherlands. This Rewind podcast is a production of Emerging Cricket, written, hosted and edited by Nick Skinner. Special thanks go to the ICC and Rob Moody, also known as Robolinda, for the archival audio, as well as Dougie Brown and all the Namibians who kindly shared their recollections. Dion Kotzer, Dani Kilder, François Erasmus, Lenny Lowe, Irene Fonsale, Gerrit Erasmus and Stefan Bard. For more leading coverage of the game outside its traditional centres, head to EmergingCricket.com or subscribe to the weekly Emerging Cricket podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to chip in to support us financially in producing more high-quality content, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash emergingcricket. That's patron, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash emergingcricket.